2: Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. Hi, we're talking about animated cartoons today. You know, season two of the Netflix animated series BoJack Horseman opens with a flashback of lacerating sadness, a primal wound delivered to the title character as a boy. This cartoon, that's what it is really, was described by the Washington Post as an incredibly dark and surprisingly nuanced meditation on depression, fame, family and friendship. It's also very funny which raises the question of whether it's mostly a cartoon or mostly a tragicomedy in which most, but not all of the players are clothed bipeds with animal heads and certain animal habits. Today on the show, we're looking at the history of animation, the history of the animated cartoon, and the degree degree to which something like BoJack Horseman, or or pick your other one from the contemporary stable, you should pardon the pun, uh, of cartoons with very adult human sensibilities Um, that these aren't outliers anymore, and they're not even outliers historically. They're a natural expression of the transgressive, unsettling, and deeply challenging impulses that have coursed through animated cartoons since their invention a little bit later on the show. Uh, we're going to talk to Ralph Bakshi. Uh, in many ways, uh, everything that strikes you as profoundly modern in cartoons has been around pretty much since the very beginnings of cartoons. But if anybody ever succeeded in getting uh, cartoons and animation to take a really sharp turn, it might be Ralph Bakshi. You also will talk to Lisa Hannaway uh, towards the end. Uh Walt, excuse me. She is the producer and production designer for BoJack Horseman, if you have watched that show. But we want to begin with kind of an overview. I mean, this is... Going to be a lot to cover in in one show. This is like 10 shows we're doing right now. But we're going to do an uh, overview of the genre with uh, Maureen Furness, uh, Program Director of Experimental Animation at California Institute of the Arts and founding editor of Animation Journal. She's the author of A New History of Animation. Also with us, Paul Wells, Director of the Animation Academy at Loughborough University. I bet you I just said that wrong. Uh, Lowborough University in England and the author of several books, including Animation, Sport, and Culture. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hello. Paul, how did I do the? How well did I do with the name of the university?
3: Well, not bad. It's, it's Loughborough, actually. Loughborough, but, I see. but people have done Lou as well, so that, <laughs> that wasn't so that bad, I didn't think. So,
2: yeah, I'm about in the middle then. Um, yeah. All right. so... Um, uh, Maureen, you know, in some ways, the, the, this myth is so stale that it shouldn't have to be exploded anymore. But uh, we know that cartoons are for children, but they're also profoundly not for children. And probably we all think we know when that started. I mean, I grew up watching Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons with my father, you know, and Fractured Fairy Tales was another one of the Jay Ward products in which little Jack Horner uh, pull a plum out of a pie and said what foods these morsels be well that is certainly not a joke directed at a child um, and and so we all think we know when that started but I, I think correct me if I'm wrong the reality is it started when cartoons started that's when cartoons started to be partly for adults
1: well um, the history of cinema in general you know is one that is made um, originally for adult audiences and if kids were watching it then so be it but not necessarily aimed towards them. Um, from the very beginning, um, there were all kinds of uh, lewd jokes and, you know, uh, innuendos and references that uh, that kids might not get, but adults surely did.
2: Um, and, Paul, this also—this um, is skipping a little bit ahead in the story—but this also put the animators into conflict with censors, various kinds of censors, whether there was the Hayes Code or something else around. And, and part of that is, I, uh, I think, because it's pretty easy to figure out what one, two, or three actual human beings are doing on film. But sometimes there's things going on in cartoons which— require a little sort of visual and mental decoding. You, you could sneak something into a cartoon that would be hard to do with live action. So how have things gone between animators and their sensors? Oh,
3: sure. I mean, the, the whole kind of thing about... People just forget about uh, making animated cartoons. Is they're made by adults, you know, and so at the end of the day, yeah, they're going to speak to particular kind of audiences, like children, and you know, set up particular gags and and so forth. They're going to be perhaps appealing to them, but you know, adults are adults. They're going to kind of smuggle in kind of things that they're interested in and cultural preoccupations that they're aware of and jokes that kind of uh, amuse their own kind of uh, their own uh, animator friends or their or the, or the communities they're part of, and so inevitably you know either either whether it's in the early mickey mouse cartoons you know just just others were seen as kind of like you know hey just a minute you can't show others you know but i mean they're, they're, <laughs> cows have others but nevertheless this was interpreted by the censors sometimes as as being a little too kind of fleshly a little too maybe sensual or sexual you know and later on in the, the warner brothers cartoons you know they deliberately put in more excessive gags on the basis that the censors would cut them and they could keep other bag- gags in that were also adult so So, you know, there's always this dialogue going on because adults are adults and they're playful. And when they've got uh, a medium like animation to use, they can use it in all sorts of diverse and complex ways. And that's why sometimes it's a very complex thing to read because adults see it one way, children see it another, and different people see different things at different times.
2: Uh, Maureen, one of the things we looked at to get ready for this show was a, a cartoon from the 1920s, essentially a silent cartoon. I have to yes. be careful about how I even say the name of this cartoon. It's Everready Harton, uh, I guess. Um, you can maybe guess what uh, everready that's a, the name of a character. You can perhaps guess how he happens to be uh, Ever Ready. But this is an unbelievably sexually explicit cartoon from the 1920s. But is that, I mean, I assume that every single time there's a, a McLuhan-esque shift in me in Media. It's accompanied by one or two things, and, and porn is always one or two, two of these things, or at least sexual depictions. I'm sure after they made the Gutenberg Bible, you know, two or three iterations <laughs> later, a movable type was being used for some kind of sexually explicit thing. Is that just sort of wired into us, or are co- cartoons especially attractive in that way?
1: Well, I think everybody that's, um, you know, in the media business realizes that sex and violence have always been good sellers. They've always attracted people, so why not? In fact, if you look back just at the regular um, history of cinema um, from the earliest years, there was, um, well, one of the, the films that was really scandalous was called The May-Irwin Kiss, where these were live actors, but it was just a very short segment where they kissed on screen, and it was so scandalous that you know, churches were calling for boycotts and censorship and all kinds of things like that. There were also uh, live filming of, you know, hoochie-coochie dancers and, and all those sorts of things. So it shouldn't be surprising that, you know, in the 1920s, that a bunch of animators got together and they were making a uh, film for one of their colleagues, Windsor um, McKay, and they used this character who was ever ready for a sexual liaison. Um, and he, you know, went through the wilderness looking at, uh, not wilderness really, but uh, the <laughs> local area, and he, he saw animals and other uh, creatures, uh, you know, doing their thing, and he was very anxious to do his.
2: So. Right. It's sort of a pre-epic uh, Robinson Crusoe story. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so by the 1930s, we're going to play a little bit of this right now. Most people know the uh, character Betty Boop, but you might, not, you might know it from sort of maybe secondary uses uh, of Betty Boop. I'm going to set this up a little bit. So this is from a cartoon where Betty Boop uh, is being essentially – uh, sexually harassed by the owner of the show that she's in uh, a big bulky leering kind of guy and who's basically asking Betty Boop to put out uh, and if she doesn't uh, she's not going to have a future in the business. So let's hear a little bit of that
4: Do you like your job?. Well, <laughs> I think if I were you, I'd we'll oh, go and so would come Pascal, with me not I have some dinner? You mean? No! There'll be no more poop-poop with you, yours.
2: All right, so Paul Wells um, taking one's boop-boop-a-doop away uh, could mean any number of things. I think here it refers at least to some kind of a deflowering and perhaps also the end of her her voice in show business. But, I mean, this can't be a cartoon that's intended for a child, right? This has to be uh, an expression of adult anxieties in in kind of a comic way.
3: Well, it it, it is and it isn't, you know, and I I think one of the kind of things to look look to is the kind of ambivalence of sort of betty Boob herself you know there's this kind of Sexual, you know, sort of figure, but kind of played out in a childlike sort of way, and so there's this always this kind of very ambivalent kind of crossover there that's sort of half appealing to a kind of innocence, but half appealing to the kind of uh, you know the more subtextual things that that people people get into. I don't think there's any doubt that you know that the Fleischers, you know, were 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 very kind of adult in the, in their outlook and you know very urbane and very urban in in, in the way in which they addressed you know race sexuality ethnicity, all sorts of things that were the preoccupations of American culture. And I, I just think that they, their, their films anyway um, were, were films that, that were, were quite happy to address an adult audience. They were interested in science and technology. They'd done other films that had referred to the real world, to, to, to science, to, you know, to space and so forth. And they, they had big eclectic... Uh, you know uh, interests and so the Betty Boot films really were were, were bound to be uh, of a more adult nature and there's no doubt they were inflected very deliberately with with sexual imagery but it was partly them I think playing with the medium and partly them playing with the kind of mixed nature of the audience that they perceived and in that I think they were advanced I think they saw that there were many kinds of audiences for a cartoon and that they could play with, with those ideas.
2: Um, in America, Maureen, it, it ceased to be uh, a completely level playing field at a certain point with the institution of the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code was this unbelievably restrictive and I would say also unconstitutional um, a, a set of of rules for not just for cartoons but for live action movies as well. Howard Hawks had to you know, live with the same set of rules essentially that the people who made Woody Woodpecker did. Um, and, and so these rules, you know, they not only forbade people enjoying, you know, amorous experiences, but uh, also uh, anybody kind of getting an upper hand on the police. Uh, I mean, there were all kinds of rules. And, and I would imagine, I mean, the people who are attracted to animation in the first place tend to be kind of mischievous, uh, slightly overgrown adolescents to begin with. I would imagine that that was just, in a, in a way, an invitation to them to see what they could get away with.
1: Well, yes, um the thing is that most people don't realize that film uh, was not covered by freedom of speech until um, nineteen fifty uh, two actually and so um during the time from the late teens onward, it was subject to censorship, just like um i guess you know any other business. It was considered to be a, a business pure and simple is what it was called and um after the um after nineteen thirty four when the um, production code was more strongly enforced. Most of the emphasis was still on feature films, live-action feature films, and so animation did get censored, not as um, not as much as um, the live-action uh, counterparts did. Uh, so you you are right, but uh, the thing is, that I think there was a lot of self censorship. You know, things that people just agreed to do, like Betty Boop's skirt got lowered so that her you know garter wouldn't be showing anymore. Cow's udders got removed, or they were wearing clothing. You know, as Paul was saying. Um, and so these kinds of things were largely coming from within the studio, but there were films like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs when it came out was censored um, partly because of depictions of um, scary content that in England was was thought to be too much for children. And also other films like um, Dumbo, for example, you know, it had drinking uh, and the little elephant gets kind of tipsy and everything, but yet it was allowed to um, go through because it wasn't seen as being, you know, as, as uh, influential as it might be if it were, for example, a live action film where someone got drunk and was enjoying it.
2: I would go so far to say that the pink elephants on par- the parade sequence in Dumbo is more than somebody getting a little tipsy. As a matter of fact, it's kind of hallucinogenic. There's It raises some okay. questions about whether alcohol is the only culprit here. It's so <laughs> incredibly uh, hallucinogenic. Well, that brings up another thing. As long as we're on Dumbo for a second, you know, um, one of the most problematic things in Dumbo from uh, a 2017 perspective are, are the crows. The crows are, from an animated point of view and from a lot of other points of view and from the point of view of the song that they sing, they're great great. They're just fabulous. But they're also kind of crypto-racist, right? These are sort of black crows speaking in dialect. And this is one of the areas where, as we look back on animation, Maureen, we, we get in a little bit of trouble, right? Uh, or, or, or at least we have to struggle a little bit with sensibilities.
1: Well, it's true. And, and images that maybe played okay for many, I'm um, sure not all, but many audiences back then, uh, today people are much more sensitized to. So they don't always play um, in the same way uh, in, for a contemporary audience.
2: Um, and so Paul, the other thing that, um, gets sort of, um, uh, I guess, satirized or mocked or played around with these days is, you know, uh, as towards the end of the Hayes Code and as we're moving into other periods of animation, you know, animation got pretty violent. And so these days, of course, Bart Simpson and Lisa Simpson watch the Itchy and Scratchy show, which is pretty clearly Tom and Jerry, which is about these two animals trying to kill each other. But in fact, I mean, there were if you look at the Warner Brothers cartoons and Tom and Jerry and stuff like that, at a certain point, they really did get. You know, in, in a cartoonish way, um, violent in a way that might not seem all that appropriate for children. Can you say a little bit about sort of violence in the golden age of those cartoons.
3: Well, it, I mean, it, it, it's a very interesting one. I mean, so sometimes, as Maureen was saying, I mean, kind of sometimes it was kind of an internal response to that. I mean, like Chuck Jones, for example, when he made the later Tom and Jerry cartoons, uh, you know, he he kind of took out all the excessive violence because he thought that that was inappropriate and he made Tom and Jerry thereafter, you know, a much more kind of sentimental and saccharine. And, of course, they were really unpopular. People didn't really like the Chuck Jones, Tom and Jerry cartoons because they weren't violent and they weren't excessive. And I think one of the kind of key issues about the violence debate, which was particularly heightened in the kind of 50s as well, when the kind of, all the anxiety around comics also emerged, that there was these great harmful things that were happening to children, was that people started to look at it. They actually started to do sociological studies of, of responses to cartoon violence. And, of course, you know, uh, most, of the, most of the kind of people who were investigating it then came up with the idea that, that, that children actually, you know, uh, were, were not affected uh, either way by the idea of whether cartoons were violent or whether they were non-violent. What they, what they found was that they could see the difference between live-action violence and real violence, and, and, and that played out in cartoons. You know, children were acknowledged to be more sophisticated viewers than perhaps people gave them credit for. And so, you know, that, yes, they were excessive, and they were at the extremes of, of, of slapstick, but in a certain sense, probably everybody, everybody knew that and embraced the humor in that rather than the kind of real-world effect.
2: Yeah, I mean, we could even make a sort of Bruno Bruno Bettelheim argument that that violence exists in the world and children are going to process it somehow, uh, either through fairy tales or cartoons or or whatever. Well, you know, one way to um, outgrow your reputation, at least temporarily, as a subversive genre is to place yourself at the service of the state. Uh, Let's hear a little bit uh, of Bugs Bunny uh, from World War II. I should say there is some more of this kind of crypto racism uh, that you're going to hear uh, in this clip. So here's Bugs Bunny.
3: Hundreds of them. This calls for strategy. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Get them while they cold. Get your ice cream, hey. Here, here's yours, bull eggs. Here, one for you, monkey face. That uh, dope shop is plenty for all. Here, slant eyes. Everybody gets one.
2: So that was exploding uh, ice cream bars that were being uh, uh, handed out to unsuspecting uh, Japanese. Um, And so, Maureen, there is a way, I think, that cartoons are ahead of the culture and behind the culture at the same time. Here, of course, this is for propaganda purposes. You could do or say almost anything under those circumstances and not get uh, too much pushback. You're in the middle of a war. But, you know, I mean, cartoons maybe were one of the last places where, say, an Asian person could be depicted in a kind of buck tooth uh, you know, very slit-eyed kind of way that 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 I guess that's why we call it cartoonish, right?
1: Well, yes, but also keep in mind that the Japanese were at the same time as they were our enemies. There was also many, many Japanese people living within America and uh, with the internment camps and the racism that was shown to them. It's a very um, difficult you know, thing to discuss because, um, you know, whereas Germans and Italians were more integrated, at least in a visual sense, into American culture. You know, it was harder to tell a German from somebody who was another kind of Western European uh, background. With the Asian uh, citizens, it was, you know, then they were largely lumped all together, you know, they were automatically suspicious, and that was part of the reason for the actual internment camps, that, you know, you couldn't trust people uh, that were of uh, Japanese descent. Um, One of the films um, from, uh, there's there's, there's a number of films, Tokyo, Jokyo, uh, is one example where they're um taking um a look at you know making fun of japanese culture and, and it's all done for humor supposedly but a, a Fleischer film called Jaa depicts a Japanese man who is a regular American businessman and then all of a sudden converts over and uh to uh you know be an enemy of the of the government and steals big planes and wants to be a kamikaze and all kinds of crazy stuff like that.
2: Um, we're going to take a break here. Uh, we thank uh, very much Paul Wells, director of the Animation Academy at Loughborough University in England and the author of several books, including Animation, Sport, and Culture. Um, on the other side of this break, you're going to meet somebody that you probably already know in a certain way. You're going to meet Ralph Bakshi. It's been cold. Alex that. Nothing
3: tried. Nothing oh, yes. oh, come on. Can I do something?
2: All right. We're back. We're talking about, I mean, we're ambitiously talking about the history of animation in 49 minutes, actually less than that, because we're going to do a little bit of of public radio fundraising here, too. But uh, we are talking, I think, very specifically about the way in which there's kind of a myth that cartoons are for kids, right, that they have never really been strictly for kids uh, in lots of different ways. Uh, Pick a time. Uh, I did watch. Rocky and Bullwinkle with my father. My father thought things were funny that I didn't think was fun, were funny. I w- watched The Tick, uh, an animated series uh, with my son when he was five or six years old. Uh, I was laughing hilariously at things that he completely didn't get. There's often things like that. But then there are cartoons that are really not uh, meant to be watched by children at all. Some of them even get rated X. Uh, we're going to talk about that right now. Uh, staying with us is Maureen Furness, Program Director of Experimental Animation at the California Institute of the Arts and Founding editor of Animation Journal, author of A New History of Animation, and joining us is a legend, I think that's fair to say, Ralph Bakshi, animator, writer, and director of animated and live-action films and TV shows, uh, including Fritz the Cat, Coonskin, Heavy Traffic, and much more, including Mighty Mouse, The Further Adventures. We have to talk about that. Um, But, um, well, Ralph Bakshi, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Hi. Hi. Um, Your story doesn't begin with Fritz the Cat, but let's begin it there anyway. When you made that uh, and using source material from from R. Crumb, were you consciously trying to take animation in a direction it hadn't been in before?
4: Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. I uh, I had the written screenplay of Heavy Traffic that I wrote that I could not sell because it wasn't part of a book or a comic book, you know, the whole thing in New York or in Hollywood at that time was, do you have a a property? You know, so this comic book that sold 25,000 copies, for, for It's the Cat, I bought that, I loved it. And that was enough for them to say it had a prior audience. And I made the film. Um, um, I was absolutely after adult animation. I, you know, the, I had grown up with Bob Dylan I had grown up in the '50s, going to you know Birdland and jazz clubs. My whole life was anti, uh, anti. You know, as part of the culture of the times, um, abstract expressionism, all this expressing oneself was very important to me, um, as opposed to just making money, which was what all the other animation studios were trying to do desperately, and why Disney never budged off of what he was doing, even though he did it very well. Um, So I knew exactly what I was after because animation was my art form, you know, and I've always played animation as my art form. That's why I didn't do Fritz II after it made $250 million. Well, that's to date. Uh, We made it for a million dollars. I was also trying to prove that animation doesn't have to be as slick and as beautiful as everyone in the industry said it had to be to become successful. I was more... To me, it was more important that you get something down on paper and you express yourself. Much more important than the technique. Of course, I would love to have perfect, beautiful animation, what animator would not. But I wouldn't let that stand in my way of not making the film, which is why I accepted a million dollar budget. And with a million dollar budget on the film, which was no money at all, people left me alone and I knew they would. The cheaper (laughs) I made it, the more they thought I was an idiot. So I could do whatever I want. so um, yeah, I knew exactly what I was after. It, it wasn't, uh, which was part of my time. I wasn't that big a deal to me. In how, other words, it wasn't that revolutionary to me. What else would a guy make if he's involved in the 1960s and 70s? Well, how
2: how difficult was it to get the movie seen? I mean, it's hard enough to get the movie made. How how difficult was it to get an X-rated animated um, uh, film to its audience?
4: Well, I, good question. You know, my, I'm an incredibly lucky guy. This is a true story. Maybe, you know, if you're pushy you enough, know, you're luck with time. Okay, first of all, I went to Warner Brothers, and they financed 20 minutes of the film. They got interested. But, of course, when I pitched the film to them, I pitched it as, you know, Chuck Jones, satiric, cartoons. You know, I'll I'll allude to a few things. I, you know, i will touch on this subject and that, but basically, it'll be cute. So... They gave me $250,000 do 20 minutes, and they they wanted to distribute the film. So then, But when I got the $250,000, instead of doing a safe sequence, what I wanted to do was do a very tough sequence, because even if they didn't do the film, I at least would have the tough sequence done, and in those days, nothing like it, what I was trying to do was done. Um, so I, I opted to do the big Bertha sequence when she's chasing Fritz around the drunk yard. Um, and all kinds of stuff happens. I'm ashamed. At 79, I'm ashamed to talk about it on radio. <laughs> but, in <Good>. those days, <laughs> but in those days, I took this piece of film back to Warner Brothers. about 40 guys in the screening room. And they saw this black crow running around with a big breast you know, and Fritz and junkyard and all this stuff going on, mayhem and sexual you know, no, not in the windows, right there on the screen, and the lights went up, and it was dead silence. <laughs> Everyone got up and walked out, and they said, "You're fired." <laughs> now the producer, Steve Krantz, at the time was ballistic because he didn't know what I was doing, and he could not believe that I did that tough sequence. So I shrugged. On the plane back to New York, I was—he was screaming at me every five minutes. This is a true story. So help me, God. I would get off the plane. And he's still screaming. We had a on, There was a Fisk building on Broadway and 57th Street in New York. So we found that's where the office was. We get back to the office, he's still screaming. We're in the elevator, he's still screaming. So this guy standing there, this little sh- weird looking guy says, what's he screaming about? I said, I did this great piece of film. Warner Brothers threw me out. And he hates me, my producer. He's right here, he's a producer. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of attitude I had in 28, 29, right? I'm kidding around, because to me, life is fun, all right. He says, he says well, listen, I'm a distributor. I'm, I'm an office right under you. My name is Jerry Gross Cinemations. Now, who is Jerry Gross Cinemations? They just did two massive big hits, Badass Sweetback and Johnny Get Your Gun. They were the hottest young independent in those days distributors in the industry. In other words, so I ran into this guy on an elevator who goes, I take the film, we both <laughs> go to his office, he looks at the film, he says, I'll finance it.
2: All right, and before so, you before you keep going, we're going to run out of time. I, I now know I want to do a whole show with you, Ralph Bakshi, so we can get all these stories. We're told. We run
4: out of time. I have a thousand things to say. I know that's what, I I, that's what
2: that worries me. No, you're not done yet. I need you for something else. <laughs> but but I, I I want to just quickly go to <laughs> Maureen. I, mean, I, I know yeah. you got a million more. I, I want to go to Maureen for just a second and say, you know, one th- question that I have for you as a film historian, Maureen, is I feel as though. You know, rather than the animation really kind of turning a corner and going in a whole new direction as a result of, of Fritz the cat and, and all the Bakshi stuff that follows, it feels more like Ralph just kept making these amazing movies like Fritz the cat, cat in heavy traffic. Um, and I don't know, was 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 the rest of animation following him or was it on a, like a 20 year delay?
1: Well, there were uh, examples of films that were coming out that were much more geared towards uh, what they call like a youth market, which was uh, more of an emphasis after World War II in general, but by the 1960s and 70s. Films like Yellow Submarine, um, The Point, um, certainly Fritz the Cat was in there, Fantastic Planet, a French film, hmm. a Watership Down from the U.K. These were all films that had themes and content that you know, were uh, probably too challenging for the average really young viewer. So there were um, examples. It was often quite hard to find the right market for them and, and distribu- um, distribution and exhibition and so forth.
2: Ralph, I do feel as though the thing that you did that caused a huge explosion in uh, in animation on television was the revival uh, of Mighty Mouse. And I know you've got stories about that that, uh, once again, could constitute an entire show. But this was, you know, a thing where you were bringing in a lot of young, ambitious animators, the kind of people who would go on to create a lot of stuff for Adult Swim. And, and I think inspiring uh, a lot of people, maybe like Ben Edlin, to, to do The Tick later on, it Maybe you could just say a little bit about what that project was. Mighty Mouse had been one thing. You'd worked on the original Mighty Mouse, but this was a very different thing.
4: Well, let me go back a second. I'm sorry. I want to discuss what was very important to me, and I want to use this opportunity to clear up what is most important to me so we can clear up all all of this once and for all as far as my films and what the difference was. Look, the difference is, I treat animation as an art form. I, I am really not interested in what the audience thinks of my films. I'm only interested in what I have to say and what I have to explore about myself in my films, and I hope they will come and see it and love it. But you know, today, if I was to make a film, I would do a film about black guys being shot in their cars for their taillights being busted, people being deported for being in this country for 20 years and the kids being citizens. I mean, was, I go right to the heart of what is wrong with what we do And I try to make a movie about it. Wizards was a cute movie, supposedly it turned out to be about war and peace and destruction, heavy traffic. Coonskin was about black racism and how we treat black people. So my attitude was to go right over the top and not and try to get away from middle ground and innuendos and films that allude to what might be happening and then they call those films adult. There are many adult films being called adult today that are adolescent. You know, sexual and bad behavior is not an adult film, I call that an adolescent film. Um, Adult film, I got the moniker for adult because all there was was Disney. so I'm saying that animation was my art form. I didn't care too much about playing games. And I tried to make films as long as I could that describe how I feel about what is going on in America. End the sentence. And when I got tired, I would do Lord of the Rings for a breather. And then I'd go to Mighty Mouse. Mighty Mouse was done because I was tired, burnt out, beat <laughs> up. You know, it was very difficult making these movies with the way the companies treated me after they saw it. They didn't expect it. And I guess I didn't expect it because when I pitched in the movie, I made it sound much softer than it really would be. So I was able to get it done because I knew they wouldn't do it if I did it the other way. Um, Mighty Mouse was a bunch of young talent that I ran into, John Chris Felucci and all the guys now at Pixar and everything, just out of school and everything. And they were very, very great. They were all hanging around my studio begging me to do something. All so right. I decided to do Mighty Mouth. because all right, I loved it. We,
2: we can't tell the whole Mighty Mouse story right at this second, Ralph Bakshi. We're going to have to do a whole show because you have too many stories, Ooh. and they're all great. Uh, thanks so much for right now. We do have to take a break. We're going to end with a little bit of Fritz the Cat talking about uh, education. Uh, let's uh, also thank Maureen Furness. Uh, she's the author of A New History of Animation. We'll take a break. You think learning is a really big thing, and you become this big intellectual and sit around trying to out-intellectual all the other big intellectuals. You spend years and years with your
1: nose buried in these goddamn tomes while the world is passing you by.
2: All the stuff to see and all the kicks and all the girls are out there and me, a writer and a poet who should be having adventures and experience and all the diversities and paradoxes and ironies of life and passing over all the roads of the world and digging all the cities and towns and, and rivers. The oceans making all of them shits oh
0: god
1: Today's show was produced by Josh Nilea and me Kayone Wolf Amanda Fish is on loan to Spongebob the part of Bill Curry was played by Boris Badenov on tomorrow's show a spirited discussion about changes in the English language recorded with an all-star panel before a live audience at Watkinson School And now, back to Colin.
2: All right, we're doing the show about uh, animation and particularly how uh, new sensibilities get folded into animation and animated cartoons all the time. And when Josh Nilea first proposed doing the show, I had two basic requests. One of them was, uh, if we could possibly get Ben Edlin, the creator of The Tick, on, I would love uh, to talk to him. uh, Because for me, that was one of the kind of watershed moments of seeing a whole bunch of ideas handled in animation in a way that I hadn't before. And you can think, you have your own list, right? I, I grew up with those Jay Ward cartoons. Those were incredibly important to me. Um, I, I think Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a kind of a watershed moment uh, in terms of uh, a new kind of postmodernism. Uh, the Tick was a big deal for me, but my other course was BoJack Horseman. To me, if anybody's doing anything really new or going to a new place right now with animation, and I don't, I don't see everything obviously, or you not even close to that. But uh, BoJack Horseman is. Uh, that thing and going to that place and what is that place before we even br- br- uh, uh, bring our guest aboard here let's hear uh, a little bit just to play that uh, C1 clip there Wolfie
0: so you're the quote unquote person singular that everyone's so crazy about what have you got figured out that I don't
1: um adult stuff
0: yeah I'm not seeing it but that doesn't matter not everything's about me and maybe I am a little jealous not because I actually want to date Princess Carolyn anymore but just because I don't like the idea that I can't, I guess I just assumed I always could. But I made a lot of bad decisions. Not just with her, with... With everyone, really. You know, Princess Carolyn was right. You are a good listener. Thanks! You know, sometimes I feel like I was born with a leak. And any goodness I started with just slowly spilled out of me and now it's all gone. Life is a series of closing doors, isn't it?
2: Inspiring words. Uh, That's uh, Bojack Horseman himself talking. He is a a horse, but like uh, all of the animals in this series, and the series includes both people and animals living and interacting side by side, the animals tend to be bipeds, though they wear human clothes, they have animal heads, they often have uh, animal habits as well. Uh, Joining us now is Lisa Hanawalt, uh, producer and production designer of the Netflix animated series Bojack Horseman. Welcome to our conversation.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me.
2: So one thing that I I do occasionally when I try to explain to people what this series is or why they should watch it is, I I guess, you know, when you're trying to get a friend to watch something, you do sort of an elevator pitch. Although my elevator pitches for BoJack Horseman aren't very good. Um, (laughs) It's a hard thing to explain to people. Maybe you find the same thing. What do you tell people?
3: Um, I tell them that it's an absurd um, but also really dark uh, comedy um, with animal people and
2: regular humans mingling, And, I mean, it, it also is a series that is more comfortable than anything that I can think of in the world of animation with really lacerating personal pain. I mean, season two yeah. begins with a childhood flashback that's like Citizen Kane or something. I mean, the primal wound that you're seeing to Bojack Horseman as a little boy horse is, you know, I mean, it really is an agonizing thing to behold. And I I guess, I mean, is that some something that you guys talk about? Like how far out on the thin ice uh, of emotional trauma can we go? <laughs>
3: Uh, I think we just want to push it and take it to new places each season, um, not for the sake of shocking the audience, but just because uh, it's it's interesting to explore those things. Um, like an absurd and funny, ridiculous cartoon with, with stupid animal puns in the background, it's nice to have a balance of those elements in a show.
2: Right. And I think the show, maybe more than other animated cartoons, asks that question, how far into the... Uh, woods of emotional pain can you go and still reel, be, reel your character back in and be really funny. I mean, within two or three minutes of an incredibly painful scene on BoJack Horseman, I find myself laughing again. And, and I think you guys are maybe exploring some of the frontiers, but like, how how, how much pain and humor can you get into the same frame? Um, we may have lost her a little bit. Let's let's actually play, uh, we've got a second clip here from BoJack Horseman. Uh, this is BoJack at a prom with some younger people explaining that prom isn't a required part of life, that the things they tell you are important as a kid aren't necessarily important or true
0: prom
1: sucks you can say that again i know my class got empty can we be back to the car so for more get for put in it
0: or we could go back to the car and just leave
4: you can't just leave the prom
0: of course you can you're young you can do whatever you want that's what they never tell you until it's too late you don't have to be here
2: yeah that's right society is everywhere society well what
1: else are we gonna do
0: I'd say it's time to get down, time to hit the town.
1: Is that a lyric from that Do the BoJack song?
0: Just get in the car.
2: So BoJack Horseman also, I mean, it explores some of the difficulties with fame. One of the premises of BoJack Horseman is the whole thing is set in Hollywood. The Hollywood sign is broken. The the D has fallen off. Uh, the Hollywood sign. And and a lot of this is about what's involved in being famous, uh, what's imbo- involved in being famous, particularly if you haven't done any of the other work. And essentially nobody in BoJack Horseman has done any of the uh, other work. So everybody's either just a, a horrific narcissist uh, or, <laughs> or, or BoJack himself is just falling apart all the time, a victim, both of his narcissism and his despair. Um, and First of all, I, I, is this uh, Lisa? Is this one of these things where people from LA say, "How did you find out about that conversation?" I mean, it might be a cat uh, or a person with a cat's head talking, but it seems like maybe these are conversations that really do take place in the entertainment industry.
3: Oh yeah, of course.
2: Um, and the part- oh, we are just going to wind up. Yeah. Yeah, I think we are just going to wind up having a very bad connection with Lisa Hanawalt. So what I'm going to do instead, where well, I'm going to sort of slowly wrap up this show and just say, first of all, um, I do recommend if you haven't tried this out yet. And, and you have to give it some time. Uh, the first season of BoJack Horseman kind of famously at the beginning wasn't necessarily grabbing its audience. Um, and so you have to get maybe halfway through that season before maybe you discover what I'm talking about. Or you could easily just begin with season two. and <laughs> But season two, I'm warning you, begins with... This incredible primal wound. But it goes also very quickly uh, into uh, some very funny stuff. I should say that you probably, you might have been able to tell that's Will Arnett uh, voicing the title character. Aaron Paul of Breaking Bad fame is his uh, roommate, Todd. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins is uh, Mr. Peanut Butter. Mr. Peanut Butter is a yet another narcissist. He's a slightly more successful TV character uh, who he's like a golden retriever or something, he's something like that. Uh, Amy Sedaris plays Princess Carolyn, which inexplicably is the name of BoJack Horseman's uh, agent. And then there's like all these really great cameos by Lisa Kudrow and Stanley Tucci uh, and Keith Olbermann and Maria Bamford and Kristen Schaal. Um, and, and it is, you know, in some ways as we were working on this show, it did seem like, well, there, you can't do anything new with cartoons because they've, everything has been done. I mean, er, everything has been tried in a really good and interesting way. But it turns out, yeah, you can do interesting things (laughs) Uh, and you can do new things. And I would say this is one of the new things that you can do. Just going to this place that is extremely painful uh, and yet finding some really funny stuff to do with it. Uh, So I recommend BoJack Horseman. Uh, Sorry we didn't have a better connection with Lisa Hanawalt, but uh, life goes on. Thanks very much to Ralph Bakshi. we got to do a whole Ralph Bakshi show. I think everybody agrees. Ralph was way too confined. Uh, in that little space we had for him. Thanks to, uh, to Josh Nilea for thinking up this show and producing it. Thanks for, to Wolfie for being on the board. We're going to be back tomorrow. We really encourage you to listen to this show tomorrow. I already know what's in it. And it's a really interesting, unusual show about language with just the best panel you could possibly put together.